Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. We are on IROC Space Radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio Network, and God bless them, everyone. Today we have a a great guest, um, an old and very deep friend of mine, um, Sagi Kafir. Now, I want to say by by way of full disclosure, like I said, he's he's a good friend of mine. He works with me a bit on Space Fund, other projects I've done. And um, so that's my disclosure. And that's that's all I'm going to say about it. So right now we're just going to start diving in here. But I, I do want to say this about Sagi. Sagi has a great background. In, in law and policy. That's that's his expertise. He is very well known in the space field. He started his education back at Johns Hopkins. Um, he got a BA in international relations and uh, University of Miami, graduated cum laude and all that other fancy stuff. And um, we're just going to have fun today, Sagi. So um, anyway, since then... Rick, can I say how great it is to be on your show, by the way? No, you can't. How excited I am to be on your show. It's been a while since, yeah, you, uh, you can't say any of that. since we've talked about this. So I'm okay, excited yeah, to be on. Just, just put it away. I'm not done introducing you, okay? Do you mind? All right. Thank you. Just kidding. So anyway, <laughs> I, I have a couple of guilt points here. I'm kind of one of the people that helped drag Sagi into the field a little bit. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um but he joined us at a company called Deep Space Industries, which was one of the two asteroid mining companies you've heard me talk about before, uh, along with Planetary Resources uh, back in the 2012-2013 period. Since then, uh, as I mentioned, he's worked with me at Space Fund. But uh, during that period also, because of his outstanding work in international space law and policy, um, Sigi ended up being the, uh, the chairman of... The U.S. Bar Association's American Bar, American Bar, American Bar Association, maybe American Bar Association Space Law Committee, which he um, handed away without a struggle uh, at the end of his term. And um, yeah, again, uh, Sigi is so well respected in the field, and one of the great characters I think um, that has helped us start developing a global space policy framework that is going to enable the opening of the frontier. So, Sagi, again, welcome, my friend. As the audience knows, we're, we're just going to like, we're going to relax. We're going to hang and have some fun here. But there's a lot of serious topics we're going to cover um, we're getting, regarding space law and policy. The last job that you just finished a little while ago, before you became an indie, an independent, a gig worker, as they might say, I was working for this guy that had the bookstore, um, Jeff Bezos, at uh, Blue Origin. So let's let's talk about that. What what were you doing for Blue Origin? Yeah, thanks, Rick. And like I said, thrilled to be on. It's been a while since we've been talking about our uh, fireside chat and how much we wanted to do that. What did I do at Blue Origin? I did a lot of things at Blue Origin. Primarily, I was the head of the regulatory compliance for the company. So when I came in, they didn't have a designated regulatory and compliance attorney. I came in, um, started up that role, built up a team, and we worked on regulatory and compliance for a large aerospace company. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of things to do in regulatory. So regulatory compliance regarding actual space stuff. FA launch, um, dealing with OSHA, EPA compliance, other federal requirements, and, um, and also building compliance programs for internally within the organization, not just, uh, not just on federal programs, but also state and, and local regulations, and even started taking a look at different things in terms of um, certificate compliance with AS9100 and and even contractual compliance. There's a lot to do there, as you can imagine. So we have a lot of, we have a wide ranging audience, including international. So OSHA stands for? 
OSHA stands for, oh gosh. We yeah, occupational right Safety. Occupational and, Safety Hazard Administration, yes. Yeah. Uh, or health. And EPA, uh, Environmental oh, yeah. Protection Right, right. And we won't get into the numbered stuff you just rattled off because like, we're just lost. Yes. yes. Okay. A lot. But uh, you're doing a lot of compliance and, and how a space company operates within a legal framework in the United States, basically is what you were focused on. Yeah, there's, you know, a lot of people think that, or I've read this in many different pieces of media, that the U.S. commercial space industry is unregulated. It's not. It's very well regulated. I think some people are confused that there's a moratorium period that's actually sunsetting, supposedly, this October, uh, after years and years the FAA not necessarily being able to regulate human flight safety to the fullest. They do regulate some aspects to it. So I don't know. I forgot. We got to edit that. What, what, what we We're not editing that, dude. We're going straight through. <laughs> so you are, um, you're working on this compliance and we are dealing, you know, with an industry that's growing, an industry mm-hmm. that's, relatively young. And, you know, in, in my experience, knowing the original lady at the um, Space Transportation Administration under the FAA, who we lost a few years ago, but um, there's George Neald, who recently retired. Those people working really hard to try and stay up with what was happening in this, in the new space yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. And, so you find yourself here um, or, or found yourself there with Blue Origin working um, from the company side with the government, trying to figure things out like where we can launch, when we can launch, what are our liability challenges, both for people we're carrying and the areas we're flying over, these kinds of things. Isn't that right? Yeah, amongst other things, absolutely. You know, especially when you're talking about, I spent a lot of time on the FAA license and the FAA license, making sure that we got the FAA license for the new Shepard rocket, right? Way back Mm -hmm. when, this is the summer of 21, to make sure that that was, that license was issued to make sure that Jeff Bezos, his brother, and a couple of others were able to take off in, uh, in July of 21. That encompasses a lot of work, a lot of activity. That is less regular. There, there are regulatory aspects, but, but also the day-to-day licensing activities within the company to make sure that you meet all of those requirements in the regulation. So there's a lot of technical people working at Blue to make sure that happens. I was a little bit of that go-between between FAA and Blue to make sure that FAA interpreted that material correctly, that they didn't overreach in their regulatory in their regulatory allowance. Mm-hmm. Because and I think the people at FAA you know generally do a fantastic job, but the government has a way, government agencies have a way sometimes. Sometimes I don't think it's nefarious, but sometimes they have a way of uh, overreach on regulatory requirements. So it is important that an attorney sits in the room, especially in this nascent attorney in this nascent industry, like you said. This is a this is a new industry. So it's it's new for the FAA generally as the commercial licensing builds up. And it's also fairly new for, for these commercial launch companies. So not that it's nefarious, but many times that people in the FAA would overreach and and request or demand things that weren't in the regulations and they didn't have the they didn't have the jurisdiction to ask for those things. So you'd have a person like myself, an attorney in the room, making sure that these things um, went smoothly back and forth. So if I, um, let's say I'm Jeff Bezos Mark II, right? I'm, and I've decided I'm, I'm going to fly me a rocket ship, right? And I want to put some people on my rocket ship and we're going to go up to the edge of space. By the way, Jeff doesn't sound anything like that. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't, not at all. <laughs> he does not, at all. Maybe some of the neighbors, which is, you know, where I, where I live. Uh, but what am I looking out for? What are my major concerns when it comes to following the laws? If, if I'm going to do that, um, and let's take it into two parts. 
And as I, as you know, the audience doesn't, I worked with the Texas Space Alliance in 2011 Mm -hmm. uh, with Blue Origin here in the capital in Austin. And we helped pass the liability law that allowed them um, to be protected in terms of lawsuits regarding any, uh, any uh, issues regarding Mm -hmm. the people they're carrying, what we, what NASA called spaceflight participants. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's start with the outside. I'm flying a rocket. What do I got to worry about in terms of safety and, and regulatory environment? And you know, in, in my neighborhood, in the area, what am I looking for? Yeah. What, what, are the, what is the government looking for to, to protect people from? Yeah. So the FAA has a regulatory requirement, a statutory requirement, excuse mm-hmm. me, to make sure that they protect the uninvolved public, innocent third parties, okay, around the area. Like that's first and foremost. Actually, let me let me take a step back. The FAA, especially if we're talking about one particular office, it's called FAAST. That's their acronym. And YAST stands for the Office of, of Commercial Transportation. I'm not sure, but that's their designation. So FAAST, the Office of Commercial Transportation, has two statutory responsibilities. Number one is to make sure that commercial um, space launch is safe for the uninvolved public, to protect the innocent public. The other is to promote and encourage commercial space activities. They've got dual use, or not dual use, but dual requirements in terms of what they're out there. Let's leave the promotion of commercial space activities aside from now. And I'd be happy to talk about whether they actually do that or not. But in terms of Flight safety. So there are a number of regulations that commercial space launch companies have to follow in the code in the in the in the uh, the USC the United States Code, and they fall, that code that's those statutes fall into regulations. And those regulations are generally within the FAR uh, Part Four Hundred. So there's a bunch of different regulations. Some of those regulations include, in terms of licensing, includes the review of FAA to make sure that the testing of these launch, these these rockets, right, these launch vehicles, that the company has sufficiently tested them that they can ensure an area of safety around the launch within different contours and different degrees, right? So, they check all sorts of data. There's weekly meetings. They they look at issues with engines or with the rocket itself. The company has to perform tests and um, experimental tests and make sure that they do some preconditions before the FA will issue the license. I'm being very, very broad here. It also includes the FA's responsibility to ensure that the company's abide by financial responsibility obligations. Do they have insurance? They have to have insurance for for third-party damages, third-party liabilities. Do they have insurance to cover government property and damage to government property? If they don't have insurance, are they self-insured? But you can't just necessarily be self-insured because you want to be self-insured. The FAA has all these requirements on how to be self-insured, and they don't make it easy. They absolutely don't make it easy. So they'll check your insurance requirements. They'll check your flight data. They'll check whether you have certain uh, systems in the vehicle, such as fire suppressant, environmental controls for the people that are actually on the flight. And that takes a lot of time. That takes an exorbitant amount of time, years actually, to go back and forth because they, they are... They are very detailed in their review. And they also have to make sure that they, they're they the ones there that protect the United States in terms of also its international obligations. So any of these launches, do they violate any international obligations? So they bring up a whole bunch of different parties in the, in the government to ensure that all these things are abided. So let's say you have a payload review as well. So we launch a payload they bring in the FAA has a proverbial roundtable and they bring in the Department of State and NASA and Department of Defense and all these people to make sure that none of these launches violate any international treaty or national security issues are, are going to be jeopardized. 
or any issues for NASA and the International Space Station. So the FAA directly licenses and also brings together, it serves as a body to bring together other agencies to make sure that these particular commercial launches don't violate or jeopardize any other things that those agencies are involved with or are responsible for. I'm giving you a very broad stroke of what the FAA does, but those are some of the tidbits that keep compliance attorneys and commercial launch companies busy pretty much every week. Oh, yeah. And and I'm aware of the kind of work that you guys do and the FAA. And it's there is a lot of regulation. There is a lot of back and forth between the government, and the private Absolutely. sector. And uh, and I, the public, I don't think, gets that enough. But, you know, look, so look, we're going to come back in a minute and talk about some other areas of law and policy. And um, can, I, can I just jump in one second, Rick? You may. There's one more point there Go in ahead. terms of it promoting and encouraging commercial space launch or commercial space industry. That is their statutory obligation. If you ask anybody in the FAA, what do you really do to promote and encourage the commercial space industry as your statutory obligation, as Congress told you to do? I think they would be a little bit muffled in terms of the response. I think there would be some hemming and hawing. I'm not 100% sure how they do that. They used to have, once upon a time, and I was involved in this, the commercial wings, the commercial astronaut wings. They had a program where any spaceflight participant and crew that goes into space on a commercial vehicle will get commercial. They killed that off. I think it was last year. So they gave a couple of those wings, and, and that was them. And I think that's what they felt as though they were abiding by the statutory obligation of encouraging and promoting the commercial space industry. I'm not sure what they do in terms of that part of their statutory obligation. It would be a great question to ask the FAA one day. Well, we'll come back and talk a little more about that because I want to I want to dive a little bit into that. All right, spacers, you're listening to iRock Space Radio. My name is Rick Tumlinson, and uh, we're a part of the iHeartRadio network. Our guest is Sagi Kafir, and um, we're going to be back in a minute. Welcome back, Spacers. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. My name is Rick Tomlinson. It is the space revolution, and you are right here in the middle of it. Our guest today is uh, Sagi Kafir, space policy expert, space attorney. We've just been talking about some of the ins and outs of the regulatory environment of people being able to fly into space, um, private commercial space. Um, and I know, look, it's like, oh, shoot me in the head, not regulatory. Oh, not the government, whatever. <laughs> oh my God. But you know what? Keeps you alive. Keeps other people alive. And, um, you know, we've seen in the past year, some, uh, some issues with safety and things like that in other areas. And so this is, this is an important area. Um, we need to make sure that people understand a, that, the work is going on, that there is a relationship between the government and the private sector to make sure the space is safe, and B, that because it's a new realm, a new activity, that people are learning all the time, and we're getting better and better at it. And C, we're going to try and use a few less acronyms in this part. And get our agencies <laughs> and our administrations right. But uh, so look, Sagi. Uh, hold you, on, Rick. I need to get my cheat sheet of all the acronyms for the regulatory agencies that I deal with. Oh, right? good okay. So all right. let, me, let me get it out here. Put that away. I, I swear to God, I'll cut your mic. If you start reading <laughs> off the acronyms, man. Um, no, seriously. I think it is important again. And, and I, I want to touch on that. That I'm going to talk about two things and then we'll get into some other. We'll leave orbit. But uh, uh, or we'll go to orbit. But the the two quickly, um, and let's kind of keep this short and abbreviated. But the the idea that um, there is a a real set of regulations and policies being developed to make sure um, that the people inside, the people who are buying the rides, what and again something else I did many years ago uh, after mm-hmm. after flying Dennis Tito, I was working on because NASA made such a terrific bungle out of dealing that dealing with it mm-hmm. they tried to like not help him fly dennis tito being the guy we signed up to be the first 
person to fly to the space station yeah. that afterwards they were like, well, we don't want to screw it up. We need. And so we were on, a, we did a bunch of phone calls and, and I gave him some advice and, uh, cause there was a guy named Lance Bass from NSYNC who was trying to fly at that. And it was kind of funny because we gave him all these particular names, what to call these people. And they ended up with a, the most bureaucratic name you could ever come up with. Space flight participants. Not yeah. exciting, but very government-like. Anyway, the idea is to protect space flight participants. And there is real work going on there, right? This isn't, this isn't the Wild West, is it, C.A.? You know, I've heard, it's not the Wild West. I've heard that term, the Wild West, many times. And it makes, it, it, it makes my eyes roll back into my head every time because... And, Look, understandably, one person uses in the media the catchphrase Wild West because it sounds sensational and it grabs people's attention. Oh, you know, all these rocket companies are sending people out to space and they don't really care about their safety. If they didn't care about their safety, then they wouldn't really have a commercial business model, right? Like if, if people get hurt, people are not going to fly. They do their utmost to make sure that these rockets are absolutely as safe as possible with the technology that we understand today. Like you said, it's a nascent industry. We just, we are just opening our eyes, like in terms of the span and the history of human history, right? And in terms of time, our commercial space flights in terms of that overall, it's just, it's not even a fraction point. So there's a lot of learning to do, but at the same time, there are, um, there are a number of regulations. And by the way, it's not just FAA that regulates commercial space flight or, or space, space activities. You also have the FCC regulating space activities when you want to put satellites into space that are communication. You've got NOAA regulating space activity. So FAA is not the only one. They're the ones primarily tasked with, with the safety aspect as well. Mm -hmm. So let's um, let's rise up a little bit and move out into orbit. You know, there's a lot of talk lately about orbital debris, trashing space around yeah, the planet. Yeah, that's a big topic. That's Huge a big topic. topic, man. Yeah. You know what? I'm not even going to ask you a question. What are your thoughts about that? Look, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, in many ways. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna editorialize here a little bit. In many ways how we've treated space in terms of what that looks like now with the number of orbital orbital debris issues that we have in terms of the number of, of pieces of debris. It's upward of 500,000 pieces, maybe even more. And that's in the last 60 years, right? Plus or minus. How we treat space is many many ways reflective of us as a species on how we treat each other and and the Earth in general. So I think... This is a good wake-up call for us to act consciously in everything we do. Now that I'm done editorializing, let's talk about space in particular. It is and is going to continue to grow as a problem for commercial space activities. Right? You've got a number, of, a number of different players that are coming up in the field that see a business opportunity here to clean up space. And I hope they're very successful. But you've got 500,000 pieces of debris and more circulating around Earth's orbit. And now we're also increasing the number of satellites that are going to be operational in space. I think something like five years ago, there was a thousand plus, maybe I don't remember the exact time. There's a thousand two hundred satellites that are active. Now it's close to 10,000 and that number is going to grow. So this is. This is a major concern because our great national security assets, such as GPS, that help out things all, that help out not just the United States but people all over the world. Um, airplanes rely on GPS. Cars rely on GPS. Your phone relies on GPS. Those all stand to potentially get damaged by the number of pieces of debris. So we have to act a lot more responsibly. So once upon a time. The guideline was your piece, your asset in space or whatever you had in, that, in space shouldn't be hanging around for more than 25 years. That was kind of the, the ground rule. Now, the FCC, in order to get a license, an FCC license, right? if you want to send out a communication satellite, the FCC has to license you. Their requirement is that 
it cannot linger in space for greater than five years after its useful period. So there is now conscious thinking about how do we mitigate that both from an operational perspective and now what do you do with the actual pieces that are in space? I mean, we're talking about pieces that are the size of a nail to spent rockets, second stage spent rockets. So the sizes are the sizes are very, uh, very different from minuscule to fairly large. But there could be money and opportunities mm-hmm. to clean up that debris. And what do you do with that debris? Do you bring it down? Do you, do you bring it back down to Earth and let it deorbit and burn in the atmosphere? There's all sorts of environmental questions of whether we should do that. Do you leave that in space and use it for something else? Reuse, right? Recycle, reuse um, in space? Well, then there's all sorts of jurisdictional and legal questions on how mm-hmm. you do that. So I'm very optimistic because human beings are very creative and intelligent beings that if they focus their activities in a positive way, they can do something positive. I think this is one example of where we can utilize a lot of those pieces of debris, not all of those pieces of debris, but we can utilize them and repurpose them for something that we can use in space. Lifting things into space is expensive. So if it's already there, why not use it? We've got all these legal and jurisdictional issues that we have to work through. Yeah, I mean, um, as you know, my Earthlight nonprofit, one of our mantras is um, recycle, repurpose, reuse, and resource. We're going to get to that fourth one in the next section here. But the idea of um, never throwing anything away. And, And by the way, it's a model we need down here. Right. It's almost like we have, as you, you said very, very well at the beginning of your answer, we are carrying the way we have operated down here, you know, throwaway, disposable society, trash it, fill your whatever, just get rid of it, throw it out the window, whatever. But in this case, we're almost hemming ourselves in, in terms of the debris, the danger, you know, my God, man, you know. Got to take care of Sandra Bullock, right? Okay, that's that's a reference to that movie. Yeah, and, 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 let's but, not, and let's not forget, these these pieces of debris are traveling at 17,500 miles an hour, right? Like one little flake that's the size of a nail can go right through the International Space Station. I mean, that's, that's harm for, that's potential harm and danger for our astronauts. And that'll be a potential harm and danger for commercial space stations that are going to be set up in the next 10 years and you, so there you've got are, private individuals. So there are people that are looking at, and we'll probably get one or two of them on at some point, the idea of salvaging, you know, these large, the large pieces before they get broken up and mm-hmm. turned into little pieces. That's, that's the source, the core, you know, of, of a lot of the, the problem, but into the, the old outer space treaty or whatever, uh, the nation that launched that piece is still responsible for it forever. Mm-hmm. There's no law, right? There's no law. Like if I have an upper stage to a rocket and I've flown up there and I've done it or whatever, and hopefully we'll be getting rid of that type of thing, but there's no way for me to hand it. I can't like say, Hey, Sagi, I'm done with this. I'm going to hand it to you so you can recycle it. There's, there's no way to do that. Right. Currently. People haven't done that because of all these unanswered questions, whether it's jurisdictional or more importantly, in terms of financial responsibility, if you hand it off to somebody else, are you still liable if something happens with that piece of debris, no matter what the other person does with that? So there could be ways of mitigating people. How to mitigate this? Do you sign indemnification agreements? Do you have financial responsibility agreements You know that, that people have to sign contractually? How do you get the government to sign off? Because don't forget, the government is financially responsible. It's not the individual companies that are financially responsible under international law. It's the government that's responsible for for anything that happens with these pieces of debris that may impact either another, a separate government or a different uh, nation's assets in space or a different nation's private company's assets in space. So while companies like, let's say, you know, Company X that has a second stage rocket that's up there and says, Hey, I don't need it. I don't, I'm not using it. There's another company that wants to recycle it. Go ahead and have at it. That doesn't relinquish the US. Let's say this is a US company. That doesn't relinquish, relinquish the US government's 
financial responsibility under international law. In the event that this NUCO, that this recycling NUCO does something wrong, right? So, so the U.S. government is going to be interested right. in what are you guys doing? How are you guys doing that? They're going to want to know because ultimately they're going to be financial responsibility of something, financially responsible if something wrong or something bad goes on. I mean, it gets very complex, right? Because so if I had a ship and I and I have an American company and I I'm done with my ship. I'm done with it. It's whatever. And I want to sell it to, to somebody in, you know, in Brazil and um, from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And they're going to operate it in international waters or whatever. It's theirs at that point. Free and clear, right? We signed the title. We're done. If that ship runs into another ship, Brazil isn't responsible. So that promotes a lot of salvage. It promotes the idea that people can go in and say, okay. You're done with this. I'm going to take it and do something useful with it now. You're saying mm-hmm. to me that in space, you can't do that yet. It's more difficult to do that because now you have to have the government, whatever government was involved in the launch. And by the way, here's another little tidbit for you. It's not one government. There could be several different governments that are considered the launching state. For example, let's say I've got a rocket that I'm going to launch from, I'm just throwing this up as a hypothetical, Colombia. I don't even think Colombia has any launch facilities. But let's say I'm launching from Colombia, but I'm an American company. There could be two different launching states under international law. It could be the one that procured the launch, and it could be the one where the actual launch took place. So now, theoretically, this piece of debris could have two different nations that are financially responsible if something goes wrong. So now how do you start coordinating that? So it, it becomes more and more complex. I'm not saying that this is not solvable. There are ways to solve this. People have been thinking about this, but because it's never been done before, it's the growing pains. It's the learning curve that we've got to go through. And these are the questions that we need to ask. These are the discussions that we need to have, both from the commercial side and from governments involved. And I know a lot of people have talked about having the UN get involved in in this discussion and and figuring out jurisdictional issues and financial responsibility. That may or may not be useful. Uh, The UN is still debating the, after 40 plus years, the delimitation of space, where does space begin and uh, we still don't have an answer for that. So I don't know if the UN is is the, the appropriate body, but and there's definitely work to do, but uh, there are solutions. Right. And it is it is an international problem. We need an international solution. Maybe it comes out of the insurance companies working with the space companies who then take a package to the UN and say, hey, just sign this or something. Uh, but the goal has to be to clean it up. And that's that's critical. So. All right. We're going to be right back in a minute. We're going to continue this fascinating discussion. I hope it's as enlightening to you as it is to me with Sagi Kafir. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio network. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and we are in the middle of the space revolution. My fellow space cadets, spacers, welcome back to the space revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to iRock Space Radio part of the iHeartRadio network, and uh, we are talking to Sagi Kafir here on the Space Revolution. So we were talking about orbital debris. Now we're going to keep moving out because we started with people getting onto um, spaceships, going up and down. Then we went to the orbit. Now we're going to go out. Many years ago, you and I were um, partners and friends and working together with an amazing team with a company called Deep Space Industries. And uh, our goal was to harvest the resources of space. In other words, we were going to mine asteroids as our first mission. You were part of our team because of your expertise and brilliance in terms of uh, discussing these issues. And I remember, you might have been there with me, we were talking to like an investor. Again, that whole Wild West thing, right? We're all going out there. It's going to get crazy. Yeah. yeah, you know, and all of that. And I remember this investor saying, you know, I, I need law. I need law out there because I need to know if you guys, he said, I, I know you guys have the technology. I know you can figure it out. I, I know you're going to be able to 
to get the resources. I just need to know that once you have them, they're mine mm. legally. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think we were like sitting in a hotel lounge or something with somebody, but that was the deal. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. talk to us about that. Talk about the idea of like space resources and what that means in terms of um, having to have law. I remember that conversation that we had at the hotel. This was back in, I think, 2013, if I'm not mistaken. This was in San Jose. And, and you remember quite well that one of the first three questions that potential investors asked us when we were talking about, yeah, we we're going to do asteroid mining. I remember after, after they got over the, uh, the shock effect of, what do you mean, like, like Bruce Willis and Armageddon? After we got over that little hurdle, mm -hmm. I remember one of the top three questions, it was always top three, was what are the laws that will protect my investment to make sure that we will own and have the ability to properly dispose of that asset in any which way we want it. And at that time, there was, you remember, there was absolutely nothing. And then when we started socializing that, it was us and there was a lot of good work also done by planetary resources at the time. We both did it absolutely. together, separately, but together. We were both talking to the White House and to Congress and to, yep. um, to other agencies within the federal government. And we were basically saying, hey, look, under international law, under the Outer Space Treaty, there's nothing there that clearly and explicitly prohibits that kind of activity. That was our position. And while some academic and maybe certain countries in the world, for geopolitical reasons, believe that we were not allowed under international law to commercialize space resources, that's a separate topic we could talk about. I think that had a lot to do with their competition of the United States and against American companies. So they wanted to slow the U.S. and U.S. companies as much as possible. Some believed that it wasn't legal. The majority believed it was legal. But there was nothing under international law that, especially the Outer Space Treaty, that said that it was explicitly illegal. So under international law, a nation has the right to interpret international treaties when there is a gray area or something that is not explicitly stated. So when we educated both Congress, Senate, the House, and the White House in terms of why we needed this, why we needed this law to provide a certain amount of uh, a minimum amount of certainty for investors and for ourselves uh, in order to in order to grow this industry. There was a lot of there was some pushback, but generally people were interested in the government in helping out this nascent industry. It took us over. It was about three, four years right. until that first law passed in the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, it was November 25th of 2015. It was uh, mm -hmm. Title Four of the Commercial Launch, Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, and uh, and that's when it became legal for U.S. persons, and U.S. person is also a corporation, to go out and to uh, actively explore and use these resources. However, we didn't get any real property rights from that. It was only personal property rights that were granted by the U.S. government. So just like, for example, a American fishing trawler that goes out into international water, they're claiming when they go fishing, they pick up the fish. That's personal property, but they're not claiming the right to that part of the ocean. Similarly, the law explicitly says that you can claim the resources once you extract it from the asteroid, but you can't claim the asteroid itself. And that was, that was the first time in world history that a law like that provided that type of ability. And Luxembourg looked at that and they refined that. And they, they expounded on their laws to do that. And then UAE and Japan did the same. There's one little caveat here now. Oh. Got to get this. And most people don't realize this. Even with that law back in 2015, we're now talking almost eight years ago, a U.S. company that's doing asteroid mining, or we like to say space resource utilization. Asteroid mining sounds dirty. Space resource utilization activities. If they want to go and do that now, and they actually want to go and scrape some rocks off of an asteroid, they actually cannot. Pray tell why. And I'll tell you why. That's a good question, Rick. 
Thanks for asking. Because Title IV of the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act is a page. It's less than a page if you, you know, look at the margins and, and take out the preambles and all the fluffy stuff. It's less than a page. The law is less than a page. There are no details on which federal agency has the authority to authorize and continually supervise the activities of that space resource company. That is a requirement under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. And that requirement flows down to national legislation. The nation has to make sure that they abide by that international treaty, that there's a federal agency that authorizes and continues to supervise that activity, like the FCC does with communication satellites like NOAA does with Earth observation satellites. So there is no federal agency that has that, what we call mission authorization to do that. We're still waiting for that to happen. Do you know if anybody's working on that now? They are. They are absolutely. They've been working on that for many years. The National Space Council has been working on that uh, for a number of years. You've got Diane Howard, who's a good friend, exceptional person, exceptional attorney, She's the director of commercial policy in the National Space Council, and she's been working along with her team and others on a mission authorization. And it's not just for space resource activity. You're talking about all non-traditional space activities, right? Traditional space activities, communication satellites in geosynchronous orbits, satellites in LEO. We're talking about non-traditional space activities, space mining, on-orbit servicing, uh, lunar activities commercial space station, all of those non-traditional space activities don't have a federal agency that is designated to authorize and continually supervise. So the National Space Council is working on that. Where they are today, I'm not sure. They had a number of meetings last year about it. There was a notice in the Federal Register that they're working on it and notice those meetings. There were about three meetings altogether. Where they are today with it and when that's going to be released, I'm not quite sure. Interesting, right? So, again, I, I just really, really, really want the listeners, our fellow spacers, to get this so they can tell other people, not the Wild West. Absolutely not the Wild West. It is not. There are so many people working on this, so many people who want this to be done the right way. Can, can I add one more piece to that? You may, and, sir. And just to, to put the nail on the coffin of this Wild West um, fiasco that I hear about, before any American company can launch into space, we were talking about the FAA. The FAA is the one that provides the launch license. They know what payloads are going up. So you can't, an American company just can't get on a SpaceX or ULA or hopefully you know, um, in very short order, Blue Origin with their new Glenn rocket, they can't just go beyond Earth's orbit and do whatever they want, or even in Earth's orbit. The FAA, and I was talking about this a little bit, they have a proverbial roundtable. They do a payload review, and a launch review. Before any payload or any launch goes up, they bring all of these different agencies to the table, Department of State, Department of Defense, NASA, um, and, and others. And each one of them has a veto. And if they don't believe that this company is going to, or this particular activity will abide by regulations or international law or jeopardizes something that's of the interest of the United States, the FAA won't allow that launch. So you can't just get on a rocket when you want to get on a rocket and do your activity. Those are heavily, those are heavily scrutinized by the FAA. Very important for people to know. So we've we've done all of that. I want to wrap this segment up, and then we're going to talk a little bit about your journey and traditional questions I like to ask my guests uh, in the next section. But um, if I want to go, let's say Starship, when Starship flies, or you know, New Glenn from Blue Origin, or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, Firefly, whoever it is, I ride up there with, right, and I go to the moon. Do you believe there will come a time when a person like me or you? Or somebody listening can go up there and head out from wherever they land, go out to a place, stake out 
10 acres, let's say, and then say, this is my land. This is my family's land. I'm going to develop it. I'm going to build on it. In my, in my world, I'd put a dome and put some trees and I would make it green and it would be beautiful. Probably a crater, right? And I love that idea of a domed crater, you know, and that's, and I've got life in there and it's beautiful and all of that. I want to be able to give it to my children and my children's children. Do you believe there'll come a time where that's possible? I think if you look at the history of humanity in terms of all the migration activities throughout time, it was impossible for humans to move to another place without having a certain amount of security to know that they can create a home for themselves and their family. I find it hard to believe that that won't be the reality sometime in the future. That being said, we have Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty. And Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, which the United States is a, a party to, and most nations are a party to, and you can even say now it's become common international law, right? That Article 2 basically says there shall be no, appro and I'm paraphrasing, there's no appropriation of any celestial body by use or force or any other means. In other words, just like what we were dealing with primarily when we passed the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act to allow asteroid mining back in 2015, the main issue was, are you going to claim real property rights? Are you going to claim a part of a celestial body, whether it's an asteroid, the moon, the Mars, whatever? And right now, you cannot claim any real property rights. But what you can do is you can land on a celestial body and you don't claim those rights. You don't have the right in terms of real property to say, that is my piece of land forevermore. But you do have the right to be there and to use and explore space. That's also granted in Article 1. So Article 2 doesn't trump everything. Article 1, the first article of the first space treaty in history says everyone, paraphrasing, everyone has the right to use and explore space. So how do you coalesce what seems like a contradiction between Article 1 and Article 2? And there really isn't a contradiction. You have the right to use and explore space. You have the right to go to a celestial body, land on it, and use a particular area. How you use it, how long you use it, then that's, that's a separate topic, right? You can't harmfully interfere the act, with activities of those that are around you, et cetera, et cetera. But as long as you're not violating those other requirements under international law, there seems to be no reason why someone can't land on a celestial body and use that particular area while they are there, effectively using it and exploring it. I just would not claim it as my own until sometime in the future where we build a critical mass and there are more and more people on the moon and on Mars, that that discussion will need to be flushed out. So we're going to wrap up this section. I will say that, you know, it is my belief that that has to change or you will not end up with lots of people living on the moon and Mars because one of the reasons you go to a new place is to to stake it out, to, to build a home for your family. One of the bastions of, 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 of America and the United States is people coming over from other countries. They rent, they work their way up, yeah. and then they hit it by owning their own home. So a lot of work to do there. We'll, we're going to wrap it up with that because you and I could go off for an hour and a half on that one. Mm -hmm. A whole different show. Uh, we've had Michelle Hanlon on, another one of your peers. At some sure. point, we're just going to get everybody together. I know we're going to talk about it at uh, New Worlds here in Austin. So, all right. We are stepping away for a few moments. All right, Spacers, we're going to be back. You are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio Network, with our guest, Sagi Kafir. We will be right back. Spacers and future property owners on the moon and Mars. I'm kidding. I'm not. Welcome back to IROC <laughs> Space Radio. 
the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tellinson. We are talking to my esteemed Esquire, as they say, Sagi Kafir, space policy and law expert. All right, we've uh, we've we've hit a bunch of topics. As I said at the end of the last segment, we could go nuts on all of them. You and I worked on this and had some great visits to Luxembourg and UAE and all this stuff working on this back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much to be done. So, my friend, and you're a so cowboy, so I can say, dude. Oh, dude, why are you and I sitting here from your perspective? Where did Sagi Kafir get the spark to go into this field? Dude, I dude. was born that way. <laughs> I know, I, 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 I literally mean that. Like, you know, a lot of people ask me this question, and I consider myself lucky. You know, there are people in, involved in the space industry that have stumbled upon it, and then they get lit up by it when they learn about it, and they're really interested, and it's amazing. It's great. My mom likes to say that the second they cut the umbilical cord, all I could do was look up at the sky and point. <laughs> and and it's true. Like as far as I remember, ever since you know, ever since I was a little kid, all I could do was anytime there was an airplane or a helicopter, and all I wanted to do was be a pilot. My parents bought me all these astronaut coloring books when I was a kid, and I would spend days on these coloring books. And then as I got older, I wanted them to buy me all these books on NASA and astronauts. And and I read about Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and all the other Apollo and Mercury and Gemini missions. And these were my idols and my heroes. So I just wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be an astronaut. And and I knew I was going to get involved in aerospace one way or the other. And, you know, around 12 or 13, you know, I come from, I come from a, an Israeli and a Jewish home. We just argue politics and, and religion all the time. It was my father and I generally, you know, in, into the wee hours, we would just argue nonstop. Good argument, like really good philosophical argument. And, and I knew at the time, probably by 12 or 13, I was probably going into law. I enjoyed the idea of law. I enjoyed the idea of, of, the sparring, I enjoyed the idea of justice and doing justice and things like that. And then I said, well, how do I, how do I marry the law and space or aerospace? So when I got into, and I've been doing this, like my, the gray here is starting to show, right? I've been doing this for 23 years. When I got into law school in 96, in 96, there, there were a few, there definitely were a few Law schools that had a focus in in space. I was at University of Miami, and I just came back from the army. I was alive. I was happy to be alive. I was I wanted to stay and hang out with my friends and family, so I, I went to law school in, in Miami. There wasn't that much going on in the University of Miami School of Law for uh, space. There was an aviation, so I took aviation. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to bide my time." Ninety six. When I graduated, ninety nine. And you remember in 99, there still wasn't that much going on in the commercial space industry. There was, but it was geosynchronous or you know, satellites and government work and things of that nature. So I was biding my time. So I, I dealt really with, I stayed at a lower altitude. I, uh, I was lucky enough to do an internship at the Department of Justice Aviation Space and Maritime Litigation Section because I knew I was going to be a litigator. I had a very, very, very focused agenda. I had a, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to be a litigator. I wanted to, from being a litigator, I wanted to go in-house. And I, I saw that happening. And I went into a litigation firm in Miami that specialized in aerospace litigation. So it was a lot of aviation crash defense, a lot of contractual issues with aerospace. And then from there, I became a general counsel for a national air ambulance company based in San Diego. But I was always involved in the space world in one way or the other. You and I obviously met in space conferences, new space way back when, and we stayed in touch. I stayed in touch with, with other people. And while I was on that aviation track, I was continuously thinking about studying about and being involved in the space world. And then as technology matured, and things miniaturized, CubeSats started, all this democratization of space started happening, where you had a plethora of these commercial space 
companies that just mushroomed out of nowhere and everybody was starting something in a garage in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. And those opportunities naturally unfolded. And then one day you called me way back when, and you asked me, I'll never forget. Hey, Sagi. I'm like, Hey Rick, what's going on? He's like, uh, you're like, uh, nothing much. Hey, how would you like to help me start a commercial space company? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. And, and that's, and right. that's, but, but in addition, as an attorney, and is what I tell a lot of aspiring attorneys or attorneys that are already in the field and looking to go into space law or being involved in space, stay active, get involved in the American Bar Association Space Law Committee, get involved in the International Institute of Space Law, go to these conferences. They don't have to be legal conferences. Go to space conferences, meet people, network, understand what's going on, what their needs are, have conversations. And over time, building up traction where people will see your face over and over, publish something, you'll start getting some notoriety and some traction. And uh, there are more positions now in the legal field, in space, in commercial space, than ever existed in the 90s or early 2000s when I got involved. So this is, if you're an aspiring space attorney, and I could talk about really what a space attorney is, but if you're an aspiring attorney that wants to be involved in the space industry, now is the time. Perfect. Uh, You actually anticipated my next question, what you would tell somebody young. As long as they don't come out of a law school and say, you can't own property and we need to follow the Antarctica model. But that's a whole separate that's conversation. A whole, yeah. That's a whole oh, separate discussion. Oh my gosh, I've heard so many come out of space law, different schools, it depends on the professors. Say that yeah, if they want to remain academics and they don't want a job in the space industry, they should say those things that you just said. But if they're looking to get involved in the space industry, then yeah. I think they, they should broaden their horizons of what the possibilities are. So look, I'm going to do my standard questions for you just because I haven't oh, asked shoot. you. Go ahead. I kind of know where your head is on a couple of things. So, Sigi Kafir is in his little pod cruising at several thousand clicks an hour. You are, you're orbiting Ceres, the asteroid, in the asteroid belt, um, which is famously the one that uh, where the expanse starts, right? And I would probably yeah. orbit Europa or some of the Jupiter, some of the you are some a of the lawyer. Moons. You are you yeah, are. I'm just saying some of the you're a s- cracking lawyer. I can tell. I'm just saying, counselor, counselor, I will accept. I will accept. Your <laughs> I will accept your amendment. You can orbit okay. any fracking planet you want. Okay. Uh, by the way, the words fracking comes from Battlestar Galactica. Thank you very much for giving us that. You're orbiting Europa. Several thousand clicks an hour. You can feel the motion. What are you listening to, my brother? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a great question. I probably have a playlist that, you know, um, that will include Radiohead for sure. There's definitely Radiohead involved. Um, I'm probably listening to some Tiesto. I'm getting jazzed up about some Tiesto. I may be even listening to In Search of Sunrise, number four, for Tiesto back in 2005. Probably his best double album hit. So between Radiohead, Tiesto, uh, and some of my wife's music, she's an amazing musician and songwriter. I think those three is going to cover a fair chunk of time when uh, when I enter into Europa's atmosphere. There you go. And I should tell our um, our listeners that uh, my friend Sagi here is a known burner, burning man, veteran of many years. So, um, OK, so what is your favorite science fiction book? I don't know if there's a favorite. I, I know that I know you're looking for one. I can't say that there's okay. a favorite, but I, I'll tell you one. A series, I would say Isaac Asimov's. Foundation and iRobot series was probably one of the pivotal series of books in my life when it came to thinking about human space exploration, but really humanity and what humanity will look like in the future and how will humanity interact with itself in the future. So I would say Isaac Asimov really kind of changed everything. Caveat there, Mm -hmm. the close second would be Cosmos by Carl Sagan. 
and the oh, Cosmos non- series, nonfiction, nonfiction. Um, I think that probably was one of the most pivotal moments in my life as a kid. Looking at the, and it's you know not even the books, the series, the Cosmos series. I would say that definitely had an impact on me. Brilliant. So, quick side note for for our listeners: um, one of Rick's rules of entertainment and science fiction: see the movie, see the television show first, then read the book, because the show or the TV series only has parts of the book in it, and you have a richer experience. You read the book first, and then you go see the movie. Yeah, I agree with you here. But if you see like yeah. the Will Smith iRobot, or you see even the, um, I think it's Apple that's doing the Foundation trilogy, you're just going to be disappointed. The, 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 the movie and the TV show is like a trailer for the book, right? And it's, there's a lot more you're going to get out of it. And, and uh, just a little side note. So that's cool. I like that. Hey, can we spend just one more minute on this? Absolutely. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about this the other day, especially iRobot. I remember and again, I haven't looked at these books in 30 years, but I remember yeah. there was a part either in the iRobot or in the Foundation series where the description was a, you know, everyone's got their droids, the robots, with very little human interaction. And the way Asimov was describing it was that humans were disgusted, disgusted by the thought of touching another human, the very visceral act of touching another human in the future is going to be so abhorrent to humans because we're going to have droids and robots. And why would we need? And I thought about that the other day, and I was a little concerned that there may be something to that. You know, between what's happening today and how we're developing technology, social media, and people are more involved in doing this and going inward into their little little phones or their little pads or, or their computer, rather than having real interaction, real interaction with, with other humans, right? I feel like that is dwindling. And I think COVID put an asterisk behind that. I feel like after COVID people had or still have a harder time with that interaction while we develop our technology and we will be an interplanetary species just a matter of time. We need to consciously think of how we inter interrelate to each other and what AI is going to look like and what these technologies are going to look like and how they will greatly facilitate our activities on a daily level and really alleviate a lot of issues that, that we do um, in terms of freeing up bandwidth in space right, or bandwidth of time. Once upon a time, people would spend a lot of time washing their clothes. You just put it into a washing machine. People just take that for granted. AI and computers are going to do that for us on a much different level. We can't forget our humanity. We can't lose our humanity. Right. And I think those are some of the things that I think about that concern me as we develop as a species, as we grow as a species. Sorry, that was a little bit of my editorialization, but you, you got me thinking when I said that I wrote about in the foundation. No, you gave us a good closer. You're bringing, you brought us, brought us home there because it's about being human. It is all about being human. As we open the frontier, and you know, it's interesting because as we go out there, uh, we're going to come in here in a sense in that we, we're going to be very intimate with people because we're going to be stuck in little places with each other. Um, everybody's going to have to be your best friend, you know, correct? I, and, and you and I talked a little bit about this. That is one of my major concerns. If people can't sit still with themselves for one minute. How many people nowadays can actually close their eyes and just be comfortable sitting still for one minute? That means you're agitated inside. If you're agitated inside and you can't sit still for one minute, I'm not even talking about an hour. I'm not even talking about half an hour, 10 minutes, one minute. Most people can't do that. How are you going to act and interrelate with 10 other people in a tube for three months long in space. I, you're going to be 
going out the airlock. And speaking of going out the airlock, as people who listen to this show know, first of all, let me say thanks. Great. A lot of fun. I know we wandered around here, but I think we've, and I know we got a little wonky with some of the uh, regulatory stuff there, but you've helped educate. And I think, I, I think, uh, I think we have a fairly educated audience for this, for this show. Great stuff. Really appreciate you coming aboard. Thanks, Rick. And for those wonderful spacers who have made it this far into the show, followed us so far in the series. Thank you so much. We are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.